Again, I, I just want to say good morning and welcome. It's great to see you. I also wanted you to, you to be aware of this. This week we had several members of our staff at a conference in Dallas. But one of the cool things about our staff is when someone is unavailable, the next person just steps up. It, it's the next person up. So even while several of us were away, here's what it looked like here at home. <laughs> a well-oiled machine. That's right. I, I laugh so hard. I have no point to that. I just wanted to show it to you. It just brought a great sense of joy to my life. All I want to say is just thank you for kind of giving me the opportunity to work with people that you can enjoy working with. So uh, that was just a little update on our staff team. We are continuing our journey through Mark's gospel this morning. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. And in introducing this text to you, let me... Um, just remind you of something else that happened this week, and that is we are kind of now in the final stage of March Madness, the NCAA tournament, which has been going on for several weeks. It's now down to the final two, game, the, the final two teams. The championship will be tomorrow night. And uh, for some of us, uh, this season every year is a time when you sit down and fill out a bracket for the NCAAs. A lot of millions of people participate in this. You may have been one of those people. You do it at school, at work, and just have fun with it. But my guess is if you sat down with a bracket several weeks ago, you found yourself looking at, at all these names, some of, the, some of the teams you didn't even know where they're at, Right? And you said, you know, if, if only I knew, if, if only I knew the future. I mean, there are always a, a few surprises in each tournament. If, you know, if only I knew where those surprises were going to happen. And even if you're not a basketball fan, even if you haven't been paying attention to this tournament, my guess is you know those moments in your story where there was just this deep feeling inside, if, if only I knew the future, right? If, if only I knew where this relationship were going. If, if only I knew where this job was, were headed. If only I could know the best treatment plan medically. If only I knew how this hard conversation that I need to have would play out. If only I knew if this person were really going to be a friend or not. Maybe, maybe you're in one of those situations right now where you find yourself saying, right, if only I knew the future. If only I, you know, if, if I could just know the future, that would make this decision so much easier. Each of us, in our own way, at times, we wrestle with this question, you know, if only I knew... And if you found yourself wrestling with that question, you're not alone because we're continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. We're continuing to learn who Jesus is and, and what it means to follow. And now in one of Jesus' final conversations with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, he has a conversation about the future. And it's a conversation about how his disciples and I think how we are to think about the future. So now we're going to come to Mark 13. Now, in coming to the text, I'm, I'll say this perhaps multiple times this morning. I, I want to acknowledge just right up front, it's, it's, this is a complicated passage. It's got very provocative language and imagery. And I want to acknowledge up front, it, it generates all sorts of questions. 
And even among those who take the Bible very seriously, there are people who hold different interpretations to this. I want to acknowledge that up front. So over the next few moments, to the best of my ability, I want to try and explain to you what Jesus is saying about the future and how he is encouraging his disciples and and thus also us to think about the future. So with that in mind, let's look at how the scene is set, right? Remember, Jesus and his disciples, they just come to Jerusalem along with thousands of other pilgrims, or thousands of other pilgrims for this feast of Passover. And they're in the crowded temple, and, and notice what happens, verse 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. I mean, it's just, this was an incredible place. And then Jesus really grabs their attention. Do you see all these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And then they cross over to the Mount of Olives, and as they're, they're looking at the temple, we see this. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? To understand this scene, you need to understand that Herod the Great was a man of many things, <laughs> But one of the things Herod was, was a great builder. And his greatest architectural achievement was the temple complex in Jerusalem. If you go to Jerusalem, you can actually visit a large-scale model at the Israeli Museum, and, and this is what that complex would have looked like at the time of Jesus. 35 acres. It took over 50 years to construct. When it would be filled during the time of festival, it could... It could hold over 70,000 people. And Jesus, Jesus was saying it's all coming down. I mean, this, this place was, for, for Jew in the first century, this was like the heart and soul of who you were. And Jesus says, it's, it's coming down. Now, for his disciples, this was hard to imagine. In some ways, it just felt like it was beyond the realm of possibility. And yet, Jesus was right. There would be a revolt in 67 A.D., And Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed by the Romans three years later. In fact, if you visit Jerusalem today, you can actually walk through the rubble around the Temple Mount that goes back to the destruction brought about by the Romans in 70 AD. So here's just a closer look at some of that rubble that Jesus was anticipating in Mark chapter 13. As I mentioned, you know, this is a complicated passage in in understanding what's going to take place in this scene, but I I think a good place to start is to think through carefully what the disciples are asking. And to help you understand what the disciples are asking, do this thought experiment with me. Imagine you and I were standing in the National Mall, right, in Washington, D.C., and we are surrounded by these famous buildings that are part of American history and culture, these iconic buildings that are a part of our nation's landscape, right? There's the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, and behind us is the White House, and over here is the Capitol, and we're surrounded by the Smithsonian. And in the midst of all these iconic buildings, I look at you and I say, you know what? One day, all of this is coming down. What would you think? Now, your first thought might be, you know what? He's crazy, right? 
After all, he's a Dallas Cowboys fan. He can't even pick a team that can figure out how to get back to the Super Bowl. How can he predict in any way the future? But maybe your second thought would be this. Oh my goodness, George thinks the end of the world is coming. Because wouldn't it be natural for you and me if if somebody told you all of this is coming down, wouldn't that be like, well, that's stuff you only see in, right, apocalyptic movies. That's got to be the end of the world. I think that's where our minds would go. And in a real sense, I think that's also what happened to the disciples as they heard Jesus talk about the destruction of the temple. As they hear Jesus say, this is all coming down, in their minds, this must be linked with the end of time. This must be linked with, right, with with Jesus coming in power and glory. And I think for the disciples, they see these two these two ideas joined together. I mean, the idea of the temple coming down was so catastrophic, so dramatic, that surely this must be something that takes place at the end of time. And so in understanding the question, we need to understand that really from the disciples' perspective, I think there are actually two dimensions to the question. The main issue is, okay, the destruction of the temple. Jesus has just said this temple is coming down. So that's the main issue underlying their question. But I also think at the back of their mind is is just the end of the age and Christ's return. They kind of see, right, it's like we've got the question, but then there's the question behind the question. Because they see the destruction of the temple in such a dramatic way that surely if that's going to come down, it must be the end of time. I think for us, this, this becomes a little bit more clear when we read Matthew's account of this very same scene. Matthew tells uh, recounts the same scene, but notice, notice the wording he uses in Matthew 24, 3, right? Jesus tells them, the temple's coming back down, and, and notice this, as the disciples were sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, tell us, they said, when will this happen? That is, when will the temple that you've just described coming down, when will that happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, you see how they, they kind of, they're, they're really two issues joined very closely together for the disciples. Now, the fact that these issues are raised in the question (laughs) then leads us to the next issue, which is this. How are we to understand Jesus' response? And, you know, we're going to walk very quickly through Jesus' response, and how are we to understand that? What exactly is Jesus addressing? And as people talk about this passage, as scholars write about this passage, there are several different angles, several different options that people take. For instance, there's some that argue that as Jesus responds to this question, he's only talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He uses very dramatic language, et cetera, et cetera, but he's only talking about events in the first century. However, I do think that there's certain language here that we're going to see that does refer to the end of the age, to Christ's return. For instance, um, You know, in verses 26 and following, he talks about the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory, and he talks about the angels gathering Jesus' followers, and that that seems to refer to something more dramatic than simply the destruction of the temple in, in the first century. So some say it's only referencing the destruction of the temple in the first century. Others go kind of to the other end of the spectrum and say, no, it's only talking about the end of the age, 
And so some people, they read this entire passage and say, it's only about the end of time and all the events that, that culminate in the end of time and Christ's return. However, I think the problem with this view is, is the context. Once again, remember, the whole conversation starts with Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple. And that's where the disciples' question is rooted. When will this happen? And it's, I think it's, for me, it's hard to imagine that Jesus would simply ignore the foundational issue in their question completely. Furthermore, there's certain statements in this passage that seem to refer directly to that time when Jerusalem would be destroyed. I mean, Jesus talks about fleeing Jerusalem. You'll see that in this passage. When you see certain things happen, he also refers to things happening in this generation, verse 30. So I think the best approach, and in some ways this is probably the consensus view among evangelical New Testament scholars, the best approach is to say Jesus is actually in his response addressing both dimensions of their question. That in parts of this passage, he's really talking primarily about the destruction of Jerusalem, and in parts, he's kind of looking beyond that to the end of the age and his return. The hard part, and once again, this is where this passage gets complicated, is understanding when he's talking about which topic. When is he talking primarily about the destruction of the temple? When is he talking primarily about the end of time and his return? Now, there are different ways to answer that, but let me just give you a suggested outline that I think makes sense of the passage. What I would suggest in, verse, in verses 5 to 23, he's talking primarily, he's really focused on the destruction of the temple. Then in verses 24 to 27, there's a, there's a change, and it's indicated in a transitional word he uses in Greek. And that change then moves to the end of the age and Christ's return. And then in verses 28 to 31, we get a parable, once again, about the first topic, about the destruction of the temple. That's followed by a parable, by conversation, and teaching about the end of the age and Christ's return. Okay, so, okay, I just overwhelmed you with a lot of information, but now let's just, let's just walk through the text. And let's begin by looking at the start of Jesus' answer. Look at verses five and following. Jesus said to them, watch out, that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of the birth pains. Now notice Jesus describes some really catastrophic type events and the language here is very vivid. Right, he talks about wars and rumors of wars. He talks about false messiahs, and there were, there's evidence in Jewish history of other false messiahs coming in the first centuries. He talks about conflict, about natural disasters. As the passage continues, he talks about persecution. But here's what's surprising, and I think we really, we've got to pay attention to this. Our natural, our natural inclination would be, if you see, man, if you see these kinds of big kinds of events, the end must be near. But that is exactly what Jesus is saying is not happening, right? Verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, the end is still to come, right? Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. 
And interestingly, as you read the history of the first century, these kinds of things did happen. But that doesn't mean the end is near, right? That's what Jesus is saying. You're going to see some things that surprise you. You're going to see some things that maybe take your breath away, persecution, people that come, and it's false messiahs, all that. You're going to see that. But don't presume every time you see one of these things that the end is near. However, Jesus says, I will give you one sign. And that comes in verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, what is that about? Abomination of desolation. This is language that actually comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. And in kind of in Jewish thought, it communicated the idea of the desecration of the temple. That is, when Jesus is saying something along the lines, he would be heard this way. Jesus is in some way describing someone or something that happens in the temple complex that brings about a sense of desecration, defilement. Now, once again, there's a lot of debate about what he's describing historically, and there have been various possibilities suggested. I don't have a definitive answer, but I do have one, one possibility, one suggestion, and that is this. It's interesting. Our, our best, our, our most extensive history of the destruction of Jerusalem in the first century comes from the Jewish historian Josephus. And Josephus says that before Jerusalem was destroyed, right, is in the process of the Romans coming in and laying siege to the city and chaos and pressure, and as all that is taking place before the city was finally destroyed and the temple annihilated, Josephus says that these radicals, these revolutionaries, known as the zealots, took over the temple complex. And when they did that, they kicked out the legitimate priests who served there. And from a Jewish perspective, that was viewed as an act of desecration. In fact, according to Josephus, when the legitimate high priest was kicked out of the temple complex, he said these words, It has been good for me to die before I had seen the house of God full of so many abominations. So this is possibly kind of the the time frame that Jesus is referring to. So in some sense, I think Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, you're going to see all kinds of crazy stuff. I don't want you to jump every time you see a catastrophe or surprise. But I will give you this one sign. At some point, you're going to see the temple desecrated. And when you see that happen, Get out. Flee to the mountains. Now, as you hear these words, remember the broader context. Remember, Jesus has just entered Jerusalem for the Passover. And in a dramatic way, he has already demonstrated that his work is going to replace the work of the temple, right? Remember, he goes into the temple. He overturns the commercial enterprise within the temple. He he causes a scene in the temple. And part of what he is doing there, as we've already seen, is he is arguing, he is displaying in a very visible manner that his work, his presence, is now overturning the work of that temple. Furthermore, remember when Jesus did that, he explicitly quoted Jeremiah 7. And in Jeremiah 7, the prophet warns, Don't think that simply because you have the temple, you will always be safe. 
So here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying this, look, you've asked me about the destruction of the temple and, and what that's going to look like. And I want you to know, you're going to see, you're going to see certain disturbing things. I don't, you, I don't want you to presume every time you see one of these things that the end is near. As one scholar has said, these events do not herald the end of time, but instead are part of the normal course of human history. However, Jesus says, I'm going to give you one sign, and that is this. When you see the temple desecrated, get out of town. And you see, in saying that, here's what I think Jesus was assuming. Jesus was assuming this, that as Rome closes in, as they begin to lay siege to the city and bring about destruction and desolation, as all that begins to happen, as the pressure builds for his disciples, right, for those in Jerusalem, their instinctive response would be, let's go to the temple because God won't let his temple be destroyed. But Jesus is saying, saying, God's not going to protect the temple. That's not going to happen. This temple is no longer the center of God's work. I am. That's what Jesus is saying. So this, this first part deals primarily, I think, with issues in the first century, although there's the expectation that these kinds of challenges are going to be ongoing in human history. But then a shift occurs in verse 24, it's evident grammatically. In verse 24, we read these words, but in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So I think there's a transition here from talking primarily about the destruction of the temple, which was focused on the first century, and that's just a generation from the disciples, to to a broader view of the end of time when the Son of Man will come in power and glory on the clouds to fill the earth with his righteousness. And, of course, that really deals with the question underlying the question for the disciples, right? Right? And then Jesus gives two parables. And notice kind of the difference between the two parables. The first is is kind of referred to as a lesson from the fig tree, verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, notice the lesson Jesus gives from about the fig tree, I think, is linked to his discussion of the destruction of the temple because he talks about, he assumes that there are going to be signs that you can pay attention to, right? I mean, just as you see the fig tree begin to, to blossom, you know what's coming. And in a similar way, he is saying, just as you see what I've described to you happen in the temple complex, you know what's coming, But then the tone and the tenor changes in the second parable, as does the topic. Verse 32 and following. 
But about that day, right, and now he's, so there's an implied shift in topic. I've just been talking to you about the destruction of the temple, and and there's going to be a sign for that. But about that other question, that question underlying the question about the end of time, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but only the Father. So be on your guard, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their own assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, keep watch. So notice, he, he talks right about the destruction of the temple and you know, there are going to be a lot of things happening. I don't want you to jump every time you see something that's challenging or hard, but I will give you one sign. Then he broadens that to talk about the ultimate return of the Son of Man in power and glory to fill the earth with his righteousness. And then he gives two kind of final teaching moments. And the first, he uses the lesson of the fig tree to say, when it comes to the destruction of the temple, I've given you a sign, so pay attention to that. But then the topic changes, and he says, concerning the ultimate end of time, when I return, no one knows. So be alert. That's how I think this this passage flows together. So now let's just kind of come to the money question, right? So what? So what? What do we do with this? And maybe you would say, George, I don't know, how do we, I mean, particularly since, you know, Bible-believing Christians so often disagree about some of this topic, where do we even start in wrestling with why this is important? Maybe you just want to throw up your hands. I don't, I don't get it, so what's the point? Well, I realize a lot of the details can be debated, and this can lead to endless conversation, but I do think the main takeaways of this passage are actually clear. And let me just highlight two of them for you. First of all, I think one of the things we need to learn from this passage is this, this, be prepared, right? Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to see challenges, you're going to see hardships, you're going to see disappointments, you're going to experience persecution and opposition. I don't want you to be surprised by that. I don't want you to lose your nerve. You will experience things where you think it's the end of the world, but it is not the end of the world. It's just life. That's what Jesus is saying. And I think these words can be meaningful for you and me as well. Because over the course of life, you and I, we can experience situations that are unnerving, disappointments, hardships cultural trends where it feels like people are getting more and more hostile to Christianity. Even now, it feels like, right, we're in this moment of cultural and political shifting sands, and it can create great fear. At a more personal level, there will be times where you are let down by others, and you will experience situations where it may feel like your world is coming to an end. Jesus says, don't be surprised. Don't be immobilized by fear. Don't lose your head. It's not the end of the world. It's just life. So be prepared. And remember, and this is, this is such a powerful image, right? He says, he said, these are birth pains. 
What does that mean? Birth pains. They're pains that are real, right? Some of you have given birth. I've obviously never given birth. I've been in the room three times. And all I can say is, for those men, if you are an expecting father, my only advice is this, keep your hair short as it leads into delivery. So there's not a lot to grab. You did this to me! Right? <laughs> but, you know, as a father of three, having walked through that journey three times, the reality of birth pains is not to do, in using this image, it's not to deny the pain, the hardship, but it's, it's to say there is purpose behind the pain. And he's saying, I want you to be prepared. Jesus is saying, look, you're going to see all kinds of stuff. And he was, I mean, even in the first century, the disciples, right, they were going to experience persecution. There would be false messiahs that come. We have that historically recorded. And there are all kinds of craziness that's going to go on. But he said, I want you to not lose your head because this, these hardships are never ends in themselves. They're part of a bigger story that will one day lead to great joy when the Son of Man returns on the clouds in power and glory, filling the earth with his righteousness. So he says, be prepared. But not only be prepared, he also says this, be alert. And can I suggest to you, no matter how you interpret this passage, you need to see this is the main thrust of what Jesus is saying. This is what he's getting at. Be alert. I mean, look at verse 30. Look at verse 33. Be on your guard. Be alert. Verse 35, therefore keep watch. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the main takeaway of this passage. Be alert to the fact that one day the Son of Man will come in his power and glory to fill the earth with his righteousness. So be alert to the fact that he's coming again. And maybe you would say, you know what, I'm not one of those people that gets into the end time stuff. That's not my thing. I don't have charts. I don't try to draw parallels between contemporary historical events and things in the Bible. But, but understand this, the goal, the goal of this passage, the goal of Jesus' teaching here is not to cause us to speculate or to debate the end. The goal is to encourage us to be alert and faithful in the present. And as you see Jesus say, alert, understand, let me just unpack one of the terms Jesus uses here, and you get the idea in this passage. It's a, it's a term that means be awake, right? Be fully alert. In fact, this is the same term that will occur in several chapters later in the Garden of Gethsemane when the, when the disciples, right, they start to doze off while Jesus is praying. It's like, why can't you be, why can't you keep watch with me? Why can't you be fully awake in this moment? So what Jesus is saying is this, I, I don't want you to sleepwalk through life. Now, my guess, my guess is all of us know how sometimes, you've had those experiences where you've done stuff when you weren't fully awake, where, where you're drowsy, right? Have you, you had that experience, for instance, maybe you've gotten up in the middle of the night and you're not fully alert as you're moving throughout the house and you don't want to, maybe you don't want to just turn on the lights to disturb anyone else if there are other people in your house and you end up stepping on stuff that otherwise you would have, you would have perceived, right? For those of us who are parents, at some point you've discovered Legos the hard way that way. 
right? I'm convinced this is how they train firewalkers in India, right? You start by having to walk through a toddler's room in the middle of the night with Legos scattered all over the floor. That's got a stage one, but you've been there. And the deal is, if you had been fully awake, you would have perceived that. But when we, when we sleepwalk and when we're drowsy, we just, we don't pick up on that. Furthermore, when we're tired, when we're drowsy, when we're sleepy, we don't make wise decisions. So Jesus is saying, look, I don't want you to sleepwalk through life. I want you to be attuned to the fact that one day the Son of Man will come again. I I want you to be alert to that. I want you to yearn for that. I want want it to affect you even now. You know, I kind of wrestled this week with, well, so what does that look like? And let let me just share one other verse with you. This is just a passage I found helpful with kind of thinking about this issue of being alert in a practical way. It's interesting, right at the end of 1 Corinthians, right? Paul's addressing this church. The apostle Paul's addressing this church with all kinds of crazy things going on. Right at the end, uh, Paul seems to, I think, actually be relying on, on the words of Jesus because we get to 1 Corinthians 16 and look, look how he closes this book. Right at the end of the book, we find these words. And the word Paul uses here is, is one of the terms that Jesus uses right here in, in Mark chapter 13, right? Be on your guard. That is, be alert, be awake. Don't just... You know, doze off through life. Don't just sleepwalk through your life. And then in light of that, in light of this idea of being awake, notice the terms Paul links with this. So be awake, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. For some of you, maybe it would be helpful just to write this verse out, put it on a card, put it somewhere where you would be reminded of it, or put it on your phone, because I just think this is, this is a powerful reminder of what it means to be alert to the reality that Christ is coming again. So look, I want you to be away. I want you to be alert to this reality. So stand firm in the faith. Right? Stand firm. I mean, you and I, we, we, live, in a, we live in a moment where it's so easily to be distracted by other things. So easy to be consumed by the busyness of our schedules and our responsibilities, all of which is understandable. So easy to give way to the idle factory at work in our own hearts that we pursue things that are unhealthy or unhelpful. And yet Paul says, look, I want you to, I want you to be awake. Be be awake to the truth that your life is part of this bigger story of what God is doing as a follower of Jesus Christ and one day he will come again on the clouds in power and glory. So stand firm. Don't be distracted. Stand firm in your faith. And even as you stand firm, he says, be courageous. Continue taking steps of obedience. even when you don't see an immediate return. Continue taking steps of obedience, even when it feels like no one else is coming alongside you. Continue taking steps of obedience, even when it feels like you have to stand alone. Be courageous. 
And even as you're courageous, be strong. Maybe right now you're you're stuck in some unhealthy patterns of thinking or behavior. You've gotten stuck in some bitterness or some fear or some attitudes that don't seem to be healthy. And yet, you know, well, it's kind of like, what's the point? Everybody gets stuck. So this isn't that big a deal. But Paul says, be strong. Right? Allow the reality that one day Christ will come again. Allow that to encourage you and to challenge you to see that this plan of restoration is already underway. And God will be faithful to his promises. And if you are a follower of Christ, you're now in this new movement that Christ calls the kingdom of God. And, and as part of this new movement, I don't, I, just, I, don't, I don't just settle for where I'm at. I'm on this journey of following him, a journey of transformation, a journey of pursuing holiness. And I can be strong in that because he promises to be with me me and he promises to finish what he started. So be strong. And finally he says do everything in love. Right? That's such a powerful word, word for our day I think because as some cultural observers have, have described it just feels like we're at this historical moment where more and more we're, we're all in different tribes and People have their tribe, and you kind of identify yourself by your tribe, whatever your group of people look like, and whatever your tribe is, you have an us versus them mentality toward people in other groups or other tribes, and we don't know how to talk to each other, and we just know how to yell back and forth. And and yet in light of the work of Christ as believers in Jesus, we've now been liberated to engage the world differently with the insurance that one day he will come in power, in glory. So this morning we've looked at a very complicated text, a text that can lead to all sorts of questions. But in the end, it really, it really comes down to one simple idea. And that is this. <laughs> Jesus is saying, I'm coming back. So live in light of my return. I'm coming back. So live in light of my return. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as I've said, uh, this is a complicated text and it leads to all sorts of questions and we get into all sorts of details, but I pray in the midst of those kinds of conversations, we might not lose sight of the fact that we're challenged to be awake challenged to be alert. And Father, perhaps even now for some of us, we, need, we just need to come before you and acknowledge there's certain things in our lives that have become very weighty and heavy. There's certain things in our lives that have become all-consuming. Because of these things, we've kind of become drowsy to the reality of your plan and what you're doing. Father, I pray your, your spirit would just kind of <laughs> jumpstart our awareness right now to remind us that one day the Son of Man is coming again in power and glory. And Father, if we can see that, there's certain things that may have a grip on our soul right now where in light of your return, that grip can be loosened. 
And if that's the case for us, Father, would your spirit do his work in our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.